Food Talk with Mike Colomeco is brought to you by Cento at Cento.com, Colavita at Colavita.com, and Wines of Portugal at WinesofPortugal.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Lomeco here, um, back from traveling a lot this past couple of months. We're back live. So you're listening to Food Talk here on the Heritage Radio Network. Um, I've got a couple of guests today. We're going to, in a couple of minutes, talk to Beth Shapiro, who's one of the big players behind City Meals on Wheels. It's having their annual gala in another week at Rock Center. So we're going to talk about that, what they do, the great work that they do. And then after Beth and I are done talking, we're going to take a quick break and come back with one of the great psalms here in New York City, recent inductee as a master psalm, not so recent a year ago, Pascaline Lapeltier. I've had her on the show before. She's great. She's super passionate. I'm stoked to have her. Every time I drink a glass of wine that's good, I think, I wish Pascaline were here so I could talk to her about it. But... I can do that today. Um, and I wanted to give a shout-out to a restaurant. You know, so I've been, I've been traveling, so I was, I'm just back. We were in Alsace, France, filming for, I don't know, nine or ten days on the food and wine culture. Emphasis on wine, for sure. Um, it's an area that I've always loved. It's an area that gets confused, I think, a lot in some people's minds and when wine drinkers' wines be called. And for good reason. It, you know, it had been... After the Thirty Year War with whatever, it became France, and then in the late 1800s, for about 30-some years, it was annexed and became part of Germany, uh, was returned to France again in the early part of the 1900s, and the confusion is just that. Is it France? Is it Germany? And, all, and to add to that, the bottles are sort of tall and sloped-shouldered and green and look very Germanic as do the varietals, like Riesling and Gewürztraminer and Silvaner and on and on. But it's a different, totally different style of winemaking in a way. The Rieslings from Alsace are completely bone dry, uh, tend to be a little higher alcohol. And it was great, great. It was delicious. We drank so much good wine. I couldn't have had more fun with the people I was with. So big shout out to everybody in Alsace and to a restaurant that I finally got to. They've been open a year and I've been trying to get to them, which is crazy because they're just a few blocks from my house. Um, my apartment, I mean, in New York City, and it's called Fung 2. Have you been here? It's, yeah, it's really, it's kind of open. I'm, it's funny because it just got reviewed. Congratulations, guys. Two stars, which is always a great review because uh, it was really positive. And in the review, Wells sort of talked about the evolution of the restaurant from his early visits to the later visits. And that's always true. It's why I really don't like to go to restaurants until they've been around for six months to a year and they've had a chance to get their sea legs under them and sort of go through that whole what works and what doesn't work, uh, what the kitchen can do and can't do process. But anyway, I was there for the first time last night, and I have to tell you, I can't wait to go back. It's great. It's, um, I think, Orchard, just south of Delancey, two blocks, in that kind of cool new neighborhood that's reinventing itself. A couple of blocks from Mission Chinese, which I know do not need to hype because 
I came back from France Friday night, Saturday night, and I was starving. My apartment was a million degrees because I didn't have the AC on. So I came back, dropped my suitcase off, showered, turned the AC on, said, I got to get out of here. I need to eat something. And I said, oh, I'll go to Mission. It's midnight. I can get in. <laughs> really? What was I thinking? So I got on my bicycle. It's it's literally two minutes from my apartment on East Broadway. or Yeah, East Broadway. And as I'm approaching it, I'm thinking, what the F? Is, why are there so many people hanging around outside? Maybe there was like a wedding. That just, and no, no, no. There was a wait. There was 50 people waiting in line at midnight to get in to Mission Chinese. Yeah. So I went to Chinatown, which was mysteriously quiet. I don't know why that is. Maybe Chinatown's changed from... When I was a kid, Chinatown stayed open late, but... I was there, and lots of places were closed, so I had to go to those old standbys like Hop Key and Wo Hop, those little ones on Mott, and I did. And then I biked back past Mission Chinese again at, like, 1, and there was still 50 people outside. So, geez, Danny. All right, I guess he's doing it. All right, let's go to my first guest. Um, I think we have her on the phone. Beth, are you there? I am on the phone, and I'm getting hungry listening to you. Sorry about that. <laughs> have you ma- managed to get down to Fung, too? Have you heard of the place yet? I've heard of it, and I have not been down there, but now I must. Yeah, yeah. It's really good. I mean, the chef, so it's one of these typical, like, could have been in Brooklyn kind of things. It's young. Well, everything at this point. <laughs> at this point, the whole world's young to me. But, no, the chef had worked for years at Per Se. I remember him from the yeah. kitchen there. So, you know, when you're in that kitchen, when you're in Thomas Keller's kitchens under Jonathan Benno and Thomas Free, you, you've got Chops, that's a given. And he's kind of playing around with like reinventing Asian cooking through a modern lens. Um, the front of the house guy, whose name escapes me, I'm terrible with names, also did the wine list. Wine list was really good. We had so, ma- so many good pairings. Um, but anyway, let's talk about what you do. So, City Meals on Wheels. When is the gala? Is it a week? Is it next weekend? It is Monday in what, five days? Wow. Monday, June 8th. Uh, evening at Rockefeller Center. We're psyched. Are there still tickets available? We are. <laughs> there are VIP tickets available. We've sold out of our young professional and our lower level tickets. I was just actually preparing an email for our co-chairs. We're at 1,212 guests. Congratulations. It's exciting. Very exciting. It's our 30th anniversary year, and it is a perfect time to sort of you know, celebrate with a great group of people and absolutely amazing chef. On the way over here today, I bicycle around town, weather permitting, and I live on the Lower East Side, and I was bicycling past a um, one of your trucks from the ah. settlement, Henry Street. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So you guys are everywhere. Let's just roll back the clock a bit sure. because it's a really great story. So we go back to 1981, yep. November. I had, I, I had yet to come to New York. I arrived in January of 82. But but in any way, uh, Gail Green, who was at the time the food critic of record for New York Magazine, just got this great idea in her head. I don't know wh- where it came from, about the idea that restaurants have excess food on a nightly basis, and there are New Yorkers by the boatload who could use calories on a nightly Something basis. Something like that, yes. She... Um and I was not yet in New York either. She read an article in the New York Times about older people yeah. going without food for up to four days. The city has a Meals on Wheels program uh, then and now delivers meals Monday through Friday. Homebound elderly, you know, people who are too frail to shop and cook for themselves. She read the article in the Sunday Times, and in her words, as is true, she was living a life of delicious excess. Yeah. As only Gail could say. Yeah. And she was horrified that right down the street from her 
older women and men weren't eating. So she called James Beard, um, amazing chef and cookbook author, and together that weekend they raised $35,000 and six chickens. Um, they called the city, the Department for the Aging, she, Gail did on, I guess, Monday or Tuesday the following week and said, we're going to do Christmas because the article was talking about Thanksgiving because the city closed Thursday, Friday for the holiday and then the weekend, and these people were going to go four days without food, which was horrible. So she called and she said, we're going to do Christmas, and we're going to feed the same 6,000 people a Christmas meal. That was November 1981, feeding 6,000 people in this past December Gail uh, delivered our 50 millionth meal. We deliver about 2 million meals a year now to 18,000 older people who built this city. I mean, these are the people who lived in your neighborhood, my neighborhood, all across the city, and are just too old at this point, too frail to shop or cook for themselves. More and more, you know, 80s, 90s, we even have 200 people who are 100 years old or older. Yeah, and they are this sort of invisible New York, yeah. right? Because New York is the city of youth and beauty and speed and fashion and, right, my idea of a bad night's going out to dinner and, you know, not liking the wines paired right. with my tasting menu or something just horribly white people-ish. <laughs> and yet, I, I, I live in, a, in Co-op Village downtown, mm-hmm. which had been for years uh, um, I mean, it was it, it, the Amalgamated Clothing Workers Union's one that built it. And in my complex, there are just there are people that are really, really old, and I see them all the time on my floor in the elevators. I don't know if they get outside much. A winter like this was an incredibly bad winter for them. I mean, it was bad for us. They're like, you know, and, and, yeah, that, that can move around, that have legs that work, and have clothes and cab fare. Mm-hmm. I cannot imagine. So. Talk about what what Meals on Wheels does on a day-to-day basis. How do you network the restaurants, the chefs, and the people that you're you're serving? Mm -hmm. Well, we work with 30 meal centers around the city to deliver weekday meals, a fresh meal. I hate to say it, but reminiscent of a TV dinner, but much better. And we have to follow federal guidelines for nutrition standards for older people. So there's always protein, veggie, um, starch, bread, butter, fruit, milk. And then on the weekends, we have actually not far from where you are right now in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, we have a warehouse where we do shelf-stable food boxes of three meals in advance of holiday weekends, um, Memorial Day, July 4th coming up, and a huge box in October, November to prepare people for the winter weather, as you talked about. Just from January to April this year, we delivered 95,000 emergency meals. Yes. Um, the funding we, for this is coming from where? Privately funded. We All have about it. a $20 million budget. We do get about eight, $1.8 from the city, but the rest is general donations from everyday New Yorkers. We guarantee that 100% of every donation from the general population go to meal preparation and delivery. That was Gail's mandate in the beginning, and we live by that. And we have grown with everyday New Yorkers, but also the chef community. You know, based on our roots with Gail and James Beard, the the chef and food world have been involved with City Meals from day one. And this event, the 30th anniversary of our Chef's Tribute event, is really all about that. It was originally a birthday party for James Beard. 
and uh, Larry Forgione and Jonathan Waxman had this great idea to have a, a barbecue birthday party for him with his. Ba- back, dis- way back when, when Waxman had jams and Larry was at River Cafe. <laughs> and everybody yeah, had wow. hair. <laughs> yeah, right, right. right. Um, yes, way back when. And unfortunately, um, James passed away several months beforehand, but they all agreed he loved good food and a good party, and it should go on anyway in his honor. And there were 12 original chefs, sort of his disciples, and we've grown to you know, raise nearly $20 million from this event alone year after year. We're going to have over 40 chefs um, in Rock Center. As I said, over 1,200 guests. We are grateful that they give us this space that is magical in the middle of New York, to me, the middle of the world. Yeah, I have to agree. That plaza has grown on me over the years (laughs) to the point where, I mean, forgetting Christmas with the tree and the ice rink, but it's just one of the most magic spaces in the city. It's it's beautiful. There's just symmetry there. There's energy there. It's gorgeous. So so people listening here, the VIP tickets are super expensive, but if people are listening (laughs) and they want to just simply donate, which is a great thing to do, how do they do that and where do they go? What's the website? Absolutely. Website is citymeals.org, C-I-T-Y-M-E-A-L-S.org. If you want to go straight to the uh, event page, slash Cheftopia. And there are tickets still available. Again, 100% of ticket sales go to meal preparation and delivery. So it's a great tax benefit and a really great night to do good and eat like never before. Danielle Ballou, Jean-Georges, Alfred Portali, of course, Larry and Mark Forgione, as well as Jonathan Waxman, and many, many more. Yeah. No, I saw that. You got, you got, it's not just New York. You've got Matt Acarino nope. coming from the West Coast. So yep. There's chefs coming in from all around the country. Really big guns, really top names. Um, it's got got to be tons of fun. Website one more time. Citymeals.org. C-I-T-Y-M-E-A-L-S dot O-R-G. That's so if people want to go and it's the Monday, it's, is it next? What day is it's it? It's this, mon- this Wednesday, coming Monday. Today's yeah, yeah, Thursday. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. This coming Monday, um, VIP admission at 6.30, general admission 7.30. We would love to see you. Congratulations for what you're you're doing. Uh, congratulations on selling out the event, except for this the the, the <laughs> most precious thing. It's great that people are supporting it like that. And keep up the great work. We really love what you guys do. Um, you know, you're serving a population of New York that's basically invisible, yeah. but we know they're there. Like you said, I mean, whatever neighborhood you're in, they're there. Um, and the, there's no, you know, the, our U.S. government doesn't really <laughs> step in to do this stuff. So if it wasn't for the beneficence of Gail and people like you and the organization and the chefs and the wherewithal to make it happen, I don't even want to think about the outcome. So th- thanks so much for what you do. Mike, thank you so much for having us and for, for giving us the opportunity to talk. Pleasure, pleasure. I know we were out here last year with Alfred. Yes. The two of you it was great. I miss you. Maybe we'll try that next year. But Perfect. Great. Keep up the great work. So, again, that City Meals on Wheels, the event is next Monday. It's great. If you've never been, it's amazing. I mean, John George is there. Danielle is there. Behind his little stand. Alfred mm-hmm. will be there. Tons of great chefs. I think Jonathan Waxman is being honored this year. Um, anyway, all the big guns. It's a great event. Great for the city. Great cause. Thanks again. Thank you. Folks, stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'm going to be back. And if you are into wine in any which way, stay tuned, because I've got one of the great educational resources sitting across the table from me, um, Master Sam. I like the sound of that. Pascalina Peltier will be back with her in just a couple of minutes. Don't touch the dial. You're going to learn about wine, not from listening to me, but from listening to my stupid questions and her good answers. Stay tuned for that.
So if you want to make a great tomato sauce, where do you start? You start with great canned tomatoes. And what are the best? What's the gold standard? What are the best Italian restaurants use, you think? San Marzano tomatoes from southern Italy. You know, I've heard of San Marzano tomatoes, loved them, heard the whole legend thing, knew they were delicious, but I wanted to go visit the region. So sometime back, I don't know, 06, 07, we went to San Marzano in the middle of the packing season in August. They've got a really long growing season. Starts early spring, April, May, and runs all the way through October because the weather down there is beautiful. You're along the coastline of uh, Naples there in the shadows of Mount Vesuvius. And these are really small family farms, really small, like a half an acre, an acre apiece. And that's how they make a living is harvesting these tomatoes. But what makes them great is the typicity of everything, the style of the tomato. It's kind of a long tomato with a really thin skin, super fleshy, super sweet tasting off the vine. Uh, We can Cento San Marzano tomatoes in the prime of the season, which is August. They just slow production down, handpick everything. Those little basil leaves, yeah, they're all put in there by hand as well. Uh, It is the best canned tomato I've ever had, and you're going to love them too. There's a reason chefs love these things. They're San Marzano authorized from the beginning. The factory gets inspected every year. Hey, you want to make great tomato sauce at home? Start with great tomatoes. Cento San Marzano. That's what I use. Hey, folks, Mike Calameco here. Years back when I had my own restaurant, I had to figure out what kind of oils to use, you know, try to make money in the restaurant business. So, uh, you know, the most expensive oil wasn't the choice, but I had to use an oil that was great, an oil that I would use at home and also for my customers. Came upon Colavita olive oil, um, which to this day still stands head and shoulders above everybody in that extra virgin category in the supermarket shelves. So much of the extra virgin category is dominated by labels that sound like they're Italian. You know, they end with an O or something like that. But the truth is they're tank farm blends that come out of Italy, but what's in the jar or the can is oils from all over the world that are just bought on price. It's commodity oils. Uh, Colavita is the only one that's an extra virgin that's 100% Italian origin traceable. It's a great company. They really built their brand on the U.S. market. They get the U.S. market. So if you're looking for a super extra virgin olive oil, use the one that I've been using for years on my table at home and in my restaurants, wherever I was hanging my chef's toque. And that would be Colavita extra virgin. True Italian, great oil. So my first trip to Portugal was 2013. It was a wine trip. A bunch of us flew over and toured the country top to bottom. Fell in love with the place. The food, the wine, the scenery, everything. Had to come back, which I did in 14, to film. And this time, eight days in country, top to bottom again. Food, wine, surfing, what's not to love? If you've never been to Portugal, it's an extraordinary place. Buffered on one side by the Atlantic Ocean, you've got great seafood, great wines growing in all those regions. You go a little inland, you've got more great more great food, incredible wine country. Of course, Port is the birthplace of Ports Up the Douro. But my takeaway was, I thought I'd had a lot of varietals. I could keep a list of 130, 135 varietals I've had over my life. Portugal has 250 of its own indigenous wine varietals. And they're killer good. A lot of them growing there for centuries. It has some of the oldest viticulture in Europe. Uh, the sparkling wines from the Bihada, the great reds coming down south from those regions. The, it, what's not to love? Crisp whites, beautiful full-bodied reds, port wine, sparkling wine. So if you're not familiar with the wines of Portugal, next time you spot by at your local wine store, ask about them. I love them. I'm drinking a lot of them these days, and I think you will too. This is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. All right, good. We're, welcome. we're back. We're back. We're back. We're back. So I just got back from a trip. I was – I've been all over. I was in Peru for a while. Then I was in Sicily, which was really fun. I'd never been to Sicily before. Really good wine scene. Really interesting wine scene. 
and then we just got back from Sicily. And of course, the food in Sicily was just off the off the charts because it's been there's so many influences in that place, man. If if you look at where it is, I mean, it's you can see North Africa from the from the hillsides. Obviously, you can see the the Italian coast, Calabria. Um, the Greeks have been there. The Spanish have been there. The Moors have been there. The French have been there. It's crazy the influences in Sicily. And then we got back into Sicily, and a week later we were on a plane to Alsace, France. So in the setup to the show, I was talking about the confusion with Alsace because it kind of does have a Germanic feel to it. The buildings are very Tudor. The food is kind of bordering, you know. I mean, choucroute garnis. One of those mm. funny dishes, you know. It's kind of <laughs> French, but kind of not. Um, but the wines were great. The wines were re- really, really fun. So my guest for the rest of the show, without any breaks, is going to be Pascaline Lapeltier. You've probably heard of her. If not, I'll just reintroduce her. Maybe you're a new listener. Maybe you didn't hear the last time she was on. But I first met Pascaline when she was, and she will be again. The sommelier of a really great New York restaurant called Rouge Tomate used to be on the corner of 60th and 5th? Yeah, 60th, between 5th and Madison. Right, which is by the right around the corner from the Pierre Hotel, steps from Central Park, the heart of the Upper East Side, 10021 zip code. Not a place yeah. I spend too much time, but it was worth going there for the food. Now they're moving closer to me, downtown. You'll mm-hmm. be on what street? 18. 18th. 18 between 6 and 7. Heart of Chelsea. Bullseye Heart of Chelsea. Yeah. And the, it's a great restaurant because the concept behind it is kind of interesting. They're kind of sneaky. The restaurant has great food to begin with. So the food's super. But what you don't realize is it's really healthy food. They've really they've removed a lot of fat from the food. Uh, much whole grains instead of processed. It's just really good. It's like... I don't even want to say it's like the best health food you've ever had, but it's kind of that's the idea. But you'd never know it by eating there. So just go for the food and for Pascaline because she – that when I first met her, she was on the floor and she will be again when they reopen. Um, and I've got lots of Psalm friends and among those, she's a legend as well. Got her master Psalm last year, which is great. But what's more important is she's just so passionate and so stoked about the world of wine. So I thought we'd talk about a couple of things. Mm. Before we get to Alsace, let's back it up because I was sitting in the airport in Paris – having to kill a day. We flew Colmar to Paris, then I had a long layover in Paris, yeah. De Gaulle to New York. So I grabbed a copy of the New York Times International Edition on Saturday. And the front page of that magazine, on the bottom below the fold, but the front page, a front page story was by a fellow who I wasn't familiar with, a wine writer named Bruce, Bruce Schoenfeld. And it was great. It was a really great piece. So it goes from the front, it went from page one to page two. I, somebody told me it was in the magazine section of last week's Times, which makes sense. But it was a nice long article, and it was all about this sort of divide. And it started out by talking about Somebody named Raj. You know Raj? I know Raj very well. Who's now... The friend. Now he's a winemaker. And he's talking about, you know, so these two vineyards were literally right next to each other. Raj's vineyard and a vineyard that will remain unnamed that was literally next to his. And Raj is saying, yeah, so I come out here and I'm growing a bunch of different things. But one of them is Pinot Noir. the, 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 The vineyard that we're standing in is Pinot Noir. And I'm doing kind of a, a style that's a little contrary to what had been a more traditional Cali, California-type wine, New World wine. I harvest it early when the fruit is less ripe, sometimes not quite ripe, not fully ripe. And I am my, – my juice is fermenting in tanks before the guys next to me even begin their harvest. And then it sort of bore down on this idea of Robert Parker and the hegemonic effect he had – 
really larger than life for much of the 90s and the aughts. Um, the Wine Spectator was drove wine sales, changed yeah. wine styles. I mean, yeah. it was the, he was, is, was arguably the most influential wine writer out there. Yeah, and he, edu- he educated a lot of people, too, you know, like it's uh, was about education of consumer pretty early on. Early? And, yeah. He was like, the guy that came up with the, 80s, you know. the point system, the idea that you're going to get somewhere between, well, no one got below 70 that I've ever seen, but I guess it's a 100-point scale, but <coughs> the idea of the wines would road like 88, 89, 90, 91, 92. I think he gave it a couple of perfect hundreds from time to time, and those numbers drove wine sales. But his palate was kind of a new world palate. So, Pascalin, talk to me about what's going on in California. Help me understand the California wine scene. You were, <laughs> <coughs> you really are sticking it before. I, will, I can do that in two weeks when I am back from California. <laughs> I know you're going. You're going. Yeah, I'm going there. So we talk yeah. about that too. Talk about. I mean, just back it up. Talk about where yeah. you're going and why. Oh, it's, it's it, in fact it's a pretty good one. Um, I'm, I'm really lucky, uh, and it's kind of part of the uh, fact that the perspective of the article. I think um, I'm very lucky because I'm going to go to Ridge. Um, and uh, I'm invited to spend uh, two days at Ridge and with Paul Draper and be part of um, of some blending session at uh, at Montebello and uh, at the Light and Spring. So I, I go for that, uh, and and I'm 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 psych because um, I don't know how. First is going to be my very first big tasting with Paul Draper, and uh, if there is one winemaker. At least in France, that was known to have shaped uh, a certain a certain quality of wine in California is, is is him. So going and tasting and 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 choosing barrel with him is is really going to be something pretty pretty fantastic. Uh, and some of the best Californian wine I had, in fact, were were in our ridge from the 70s, the 80s, and 90s. So. <coughs> It's kind of the part of the history of California. So I'm going to spend two days with him, and then I'm going to I'm going to spend some time with a producer I work kind of closely with, um, and more of this like new generation, new uh, third generation of growers that are mentioned also in, the, in a certain way in the article, that are looking for cooler sites, cooler climate, uh, lower alcohol, higher acid, uh, more natural fermentation, organic biodynamic farming. Um, and I'm going to spend three days with them, and also I'm going to I'm going to do something pretty awesome. Um, I'm going to tour vineyards with uh, Tigan Paslaqua, that uh, is a winemaker for Turley, and Tigan uh, is also part of an association that is about uh, preserving the heritage vineyards of California. So these old vineyards uh, feel blend. Uh, plant in the 19th century that has been ripped out little by little and now are reconsidered treasure. And so with Tigan, we are just going to spend a day touring that. So Tigan is uh, at the forefront of this also. So these are vines that are still productive? Yeah. And it's field blend, so nobody knows. They'll have to pull DNA. Nobody, nobody knows exactly what was planted. But some of them are field blend. Some of them are more like um, I have, a, have, a, have a certain have a driven varietal, but uh, like he was like in France, you know, historically, a lot of vineyards were field blend. Uh, one of one of the most um, like iconic one I was lucky to visit with Tigan and, and Abe Schoner like last year was uh, the library vineyard in in, uh, in in the north of Napa and probably 25, 30 different varieties from Charbonneau to Carignan to Monastrel, Mourvain, Matarol, how you want to name it, to Zane, uh, some whites, uh, and so on and so on. And, and, and they are extraordinary sight, and yes, they are producing. They are producing. 
um, and but they are producing probably the grapes that are not that trendy and it's great that young young extremely talented guys like Tigan uh, like all the guy at Bedrock uh, Morgan uh, Twin Peterson like just to name him are, are, are just with and with the help of older winemaker older in quotation mark uh, more historical winemaker are just like trying to preserve his sites you mm-hmm. know and so um, what's happening right now in California is is pretty fantastic and especially with this dialogue between the the real historical parts of the valley and the extraordinary <coughs> dynamic of, uh, of of farming and winemaking that's happening right now, you know? I think there is a... It's very unique and it's pretty fantastic to, to, to go and, and uh, try to see what's happening in Kelly right now. And you talked about... I mean, before we were on air, you were making a great point about... <sighs> as a culture, America, how young we are to wine. And it's so true. I mean, we don't think about it, but... So I'm almost 60 now, and when I go back to when I was a kid, I mean, my God, the people just weren't, unless you were really well-heeled and well-traveled, or ethnic. Like, my grandparents drank homemade wine with dinner all the time, but somebody in the neighborhood made it. I have no idea what it was. kind of reminds me now of some bad Sangiovese or something. But, I mean, but wine drinking in America was just sort of like the elite knew. If you had been to Europe, you knew about Bordeaux and Burgundy. But America was not a culture that was consuming wine in the 60s and 70s. California's kind of just getting started. So it's really just the last 20 years that we've sort of woken up, or maybe 30 now, to the world of wine, and our palates have changed. And talk about, I mean, so you're mentioning like the third generation of California winemakers, and the first ones would maybe we would go back to like the Mondavis of the world, or whom? Yeah, like, you know, I'm, I'm just watching that from outside, and you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a young outsider coming from Europe, and just also I just work in New York, so I, I haven't never worked in a valley in Cali, but yeah, just like when you when you read or when you taste, there is like the, the, the pioneer and the founders that you can probably stretch from 1890 up to the 1980s, and then you get the second kind of generation that were the first to go to UC Davis and yeah, to study to, and, and study really yeah. study. And 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 they, they they had a huge impact, but probably more a technical number, rational um, rational impact on viticulture, where maybe uh, you know it's maybe numbers were more valuable than intuition, just because we are not talking about an area where you could rely on a certain a certain wisdom of generation of growers like you can do in the old right. world, you know, so where. A lot of observation and intuition were part of how to make and how to grow. Like suddenly you are here and you go to school and probably you learn numbers and you learn rules and you learn so facts. So pH of the soil, it's brick of the grape, it's ripeness yeah. of the grape, it's the technical. Yeah, where you, you because this kind of 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 extensive observation in time were probably not. You didn't just didn't have it. So Correct. Which tool can you have? Right. You have scientific tool, and you're right. going to use them to right. learn what where you are growing grapes. So now you rely on that, uh, and then you get probably an excess, like in everything else. You know, like intuition can be excessive, and rationalization can be excessive. Uh, so if you just rely on numbers, maybe at one point you know you go wrong. On you, if you just rely on a certain way of thinking, science. And now we are kind of, I just feel like you have guys also going to, to or like even us, like, you know, on the somewhere we are going to school, we are learning a lot of data, but there is just way more discussion, dialogue. They are not even anymore regional. They are international. 
you can travel the world. You can suddenly be in conversation with people from Greece and Friuli and Burgundy, and and you can you can by this dialogue start to really understand things that maybe you can apply to where you are. And right now, what where things what's happening is this kind of mix between getting back to uh, to a certain respect, intuition, other type of knowledge. And it's um, yeah, it's, it's how I see it. So second generation and now third generation. And uh, and <clears throat> to the benefit of this third generation, the newest generation, the American public palate has changed so much in the last 15, 20 years. I remember talking to Neil Rosenthal, importer, and Neil was a champion of a certain, you know, kind of the, well, let's just, for want of a better term, you know, high acid wines, and was bringing them in in the 90s to restaurants, and chefs, we would drink them, and we loved it. But they'd say, we can't sell these. Well, the American palate wasn't there yet. So I think in the last 15, 20 years, almost in lockstep with, now that we're sort of done with the days of over oaked, flabby Chardonnays, and cabs that are 15.5 alcohol and just these broad-shouldered bullies. And now the American palate really is embracing acidity, minerality, lower alcohol at the same time, no? Yeah, it's probably also like, um, it's it's a broader movement also. I, I, I think it's probably linked to the food also. Uh, you know, the way you are eating food and the way you are drinking is different. Uh, uh, um, it's more... Uh, it's maybe less a teenager palette and more a mature palette. Less teenager, uh, more mature. Yeah. And so, uh, and when suddenly you you kind of of appreciate things that are maybe a little less uh, um, uh, immediately like uh, satisfying. You know, it's not only about sweetness and, and spice, and you, you start to, to discover all the level and layers. Right. Uh, like just I'm here since only six years, and like. It's been extraordinary in six years, and everything is compressed today. Probably what would have taken 20 years, 50 years ago is not just taking one or two years. Uh, and if you put that with a with, uh, we can just travel all around the world pretty easily for a quite decent price. You go abroad to to, to study. You families like spit off everywhere. You are exposed to 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 taste that you probably would have not been exposed to if you are just staying in your place and. And it goes for wine the same way. Um, and yes, it takes a bit of education, like for everything. You know, you, you try to, I don't know, eat capers when you're a baby. And it's going to be difficult. So, <laughs> yeah, that's um, right. So, and this is why it's uh, what's happening right now. It's extraordinary dynamic. And it's not black and white. It may have been black and white a couple of years ago, but now it's, getting, it's definitely uh, like gray. It's, it's a scale of gray. Um, but... Like the question of of this alcohol and profile of of wine and and profile of palate, I think it's just a symptom of like an idea of how we decide to uh, to grow and farm, and a, a question of of agriculture and viticulture, mm. uh, which mm. is more about do we want to uh, produce something for for a style of a market? So is it the the stylistic the final part? Or now do we realize that we are dealing with something that you may control, yet we should more observe and pay attention to? And in that case, at least for California, because it's still kind of an area where they are discovering so many soil and and places to grow, observation uh, where is the best best place to plant grapes, where is the best place to grow grapes, if tomorrow we don't have any more irrigation 
And if tomorrow the, the, the public doesn't like 15 or 16% wine, how maybe instead of looking at the very end, we should go and look at the very beginning and just observe where is the best terroir and biodiversity to grow plants and vine. Yeah. <clears throat> Great. Well put. And that's kind of what's happening. To that end, I was able to... Um, I don't know where I had my notes. I had them somewhere. But to that end, I was able to... One of the days, we sat down with Ostertag and the guys from Just My Air. We sat around with the organic guys. And I must say, in, in, in credit to the AOC in Alsace, they're really very friendly to organic bioproducers. More so than other AOCs. They've been very dynamic. And they're very... Um they have really iconic producers that very early on went uh, in that path um, and showed that it was possible to uh, to grow organic, to grow biodynamic, uh, yet to be uh, to be recognized as some of the greatest and uh, greatest growers in the area. And uh, over time, you know, uh, you are mentioning like Christophe at. Uh, Christophe Ashjus Meyer is one of them, Ostertag, but Olivier Zinombrecht is also yeah, one Louis, of them. Yeah, that's who we were with. It was Olivier Humbrecht, Andre, that's who we were with. Yeah. The three guys, Olivier Humbrecht, Andre Ostertag, and, uh, and Christophe. Christophe Erhard. Erhard, yeah. And before that, I was with, I didn't realize this, before that I was with um, Catherine Fowler of Weinbach, and I didn't realize they yeah. had been in by your name. Yeah, since the 90s. Yeah, it's been a long time for them. It's also probably because uh, being closer to Germany, where Steiner and like a lot of uh, of bio, like organic movement have been stronger than in France, I think there is definitely an influence of that. And the climate of Alsace, um, in the if you think about uh, northern northern area to grow grape, uh, Alsace is a little bit more lucky, and it's a little bit less complicated to grow organic and biodynamic um, just because there is a bit less rain influence uh, than if you go towards, you know, the Loire, the coast, even Bordeaux. So combination of that and re-believer close to nature and you get these guys uh, that are re- really strong and really big pioneer and exceptional winemaker. Uh, the wine are, the quality of Alsatian wine right now is totally underrated. Agreed. So... I mean, that's kind of why we were there to tell that story. So, and for me, it was an eye opener because you know you're you've, you're one of the great things you have with your job and and Risto and all the Psalms is all day long. I mean, we were walking in here today, and someone says Pascaline, and it's Zev who's sitting at a table, and Zev's an importer with a great bio portfolio, really good, really good portfolio. Good. Uh, so Zev's outside with uh, I don't know who he's with, who his friends are, but you know, there's a dozen bottles open on the table, and all day long you're tasting, tasting. For the rest of us, it's not so easy to do. So go, for these trips are great for me because then I get to get to visit producers and taste. And uh, one of the first days we were there, we were drinking. Not old, but Riesling's back to the late seventies and eighties. Oh, yeah. Just killer, like alive, like like just super wines. Uh, Riesling, yeah, huh? <laughs> Riesling is fantastic. Yeah, and uh, no, they uh, they are like you know they've been making wine for centuries. Um, uh, it's the only thing with Alsace is like you mentioned, it is uh, went through that phase where it was more about varietals and about soil, and more about volumes than about quality, and more about hiding with some residual sugar what should be dilution and uh, and fortunately for us um, really a couple of growers realized that 30-40 years ago and went back to a definition of, of, of sense of soil lower, lower, lower yield higher density of plantation and the idea is that uh, because you, you when, when you look at all the appellation in France uh, Alsace is really the only one that are 
mentioning great variety on the label. The only one, correct. The so, only one where you're going to see. That's a great point. Another and, reason, and you know the label, correct. Yes, you know the varietals. Right. So, so what does that mean? I mean that what drives the the cell is a varietal. Uh, so, if you want a riesling, you need, you need to take riesling as a varietal. But as you know, if you if you grow a riesling on a very warm site, which is uh, a very like limestone-based soil versus a north exposure, uh, where you may have some some quartz or other like volcanic-based soil, metamorphic-based, soil, you you probably not going to have the same taste. So, yeah. riesling being a very um, polymorph uh, grape takes so well this variation that. Your wrestling is not going to taste like a, like the wrestling, the varietal basic wrestling. So, you sell it, maybe not if you don't educate, and 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 anywhere in that that problem in Alsace for a while, and and so um, so uh, the, the fact that they really work today on the on more and more people are refocusing on where it's grown and how it's grown. Uh, is exceptional. The only problem is like it's complicated. There is a lot of vineyards. It's like you know, you think you know, you think Burgundy is complicated. Go to Alsace. Uh, mm-hmm. Names are difficult to pronounce, and there are still a lot of people just swearing by the varietal. So we stood in one Schlumberger was the name of the producer, yeah. not a bio, but. Um, we stood in one of their vineyards, and she pointed out three parcels. One to my left. That was southern, one to my left that was on the slope, and one to my back right. And these are three Grand Crus. I've got 51 mm-hmm. Grand Crus in Alsace. Yeah. And so she said, these, so these three parcels are next to each other, but each one has a different soil typicity. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible... Incre- incre- so we went and tasted it. I said, you know what? Sh- show me. So later that day, we went, and we were doing a tart flambe demo at a restaurant. Mm-hmm. I said, meet me at the restaurant and bring me these three Grand Crus. I went the same year, same everything. So it's a level yeah. playing field. And it was like three different wines. Yeah. It is like it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, like it's always when people are talking about there is no translation of soil in a, in a wine. You know, maybe not di- a direct uh, mineral absorption from the roots, uh, but this is the climate, the slight change of temperature, the slight exposition of sun varying bits, the pH, the water retention. You're gonna get some different fruit. You're gonna get different wine. Yeah. So. So Olivier Humbach, we're ha- Humbrecht. We were having this picnic with he and Ostertag, and we're on the slopes of Rangen, which is one of his yep, vineyards. Right. It's super steep slope. And he said, Mike, we're sitting on this slope, and we're gonna taste the wine in a minute. But there's a river at the bottom. There's a river, at the, and that affects the microclimate yeah. for sure. It affects the temperature. It affects the humidity. It affects everything. And and then, of course, we have different temperature changes because of the steepness of the slope. So when I'm blending my Riesling from the slope, I have a two-degree pH swing from the top of the hill to the bottom, which is crazy. I mean, just on this one slope of, I don't know what it was, a quarter mile, a half a mile. Yeah, it's pretty pretty high. Really pretty high. And, of course, differences in the higher up we go, the less alcohol, the rest of the further down towards the river, I'm getting more fruit, I'm getting more alcohol. It's crazy. Even within this one slope, the, the variation I'm getting. I look in Burgundy, you yeah. know, like yes. it's the same thing that what, what, they, what they did in Burgundy is very like, uh, it's kind of being on a, under a microscope, but uh, bottom of a slope, high top of a slope is village, uh, and then you go to the premier cru and in the middle is, is Grand Cru. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's been observed, uh, it's been forgotten, it's been observed, and, and now it's, it's, it's under, it starts to be understood a little bit more again, you know. Um, and uh, and it's, it's, why, it's why Alzac today is probably producing some of the, some of the most interesting white wine. 
they are doing amazing Pinot. Uh, Pinot don't mistake me, but Pinot Noir. But yeah. uh, just the production is driven by white grapes, so you are more, yeah. more, more, more able to find white than red. But the quality of and, and, and the expression you can get from Alsace today it was crazy. And then, so part of this, so I didn't. Another thing I learned was so Riesling's a funny grape, as you said, polymorph in a sense, and also it, it's a very slow grape to ferment. You know, if Chardonnay is a sprinter, uh, Riesling's a long distance runner. It slow fermentation for sure. So in maybe half of the vineyards that we were visiting, they were fermenting an old huge format oak mm-hmm. barrels yeah. lined with that kind of it's not oak it's it's anyway the barrels are huge but they've got tartaric acid that forms on the inside yeah easy yeah. so it's not so much contact with oak mm-hmm. but the fermentation was was four five six months on gross lees yeah because Especially if we are using natural yeast. Yeah, you know, natural yeast. Um, These are the bio guys. This was Fowler. Yeah. This was Ostertag. So, yeah. I mean, super slow fermentations. You, you take your time. And it's also like, uh, like it's dependent on vintage. Like you said, depend on pH. Uh, it's cold in Alsace during the winter. So, so they are not necessarily temperature controlled. Uh, right. And we are talking about guys also that have been farming in an incredible... Like the quality of farming allows them to, to, uh, to let the wine ferment its own way. You know, to have the... The, the, the bacterial and yeast population able to handle the, ju- the juice without spoiling it. Uh, there is a confidence there. There is a. It's not. It's not an overnight thing. We are t- mm-hmm. like they've been working since years. They've yes. been recognized <laughs> more recently, but they've been working since years. Yes, yeah, so many that. of these families. I was meeting the eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth generation of the family that had been on that land, on those parcels, slowly expanding. But I mean, that's, yeah, that's going back to the 1600s, 1700s, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's priceless history. Uh, and it's, uh, it, it, makes a, it makes a difference. Um, Alsace, uh, Alsace should be way more considered, especially for the price of the wine, uh, which I think are, are a bargain um, among the greatest white wine in the world today. Yeah, um, agreed, agreed. And they age very, very well. Um, the incredible potential of aging of the wrestling, but also Pinot Gris. I'm less a fan of Muscat and Gevers because I just, um, just more not aromatically, it's a bit, bit too, too intense. Yet, when Muscat and Gevers are on the right side and they are able to, to, like the winemaker is able to tame down the varietal, you just discover a, a, a phenolic, a, a textural compound of, of these two grapes that are phenomenal. Phenomenal. Uh, and, and, it's, it's one of the wine for sommelier which are dream. You can almost just build a, a whole wine list just with Alsatian wine today. I, you can start with the sparkling, you can get the, the cremant, and then you can re really fun with all the style of the white. You can have rosé, red, and dessert wine. How like it's you can do a whole list with that. The only other grape I think that comes close would be something called Chenin Blanc. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From your backyard. From my backyard, yeah, with Riesling. Yeah, yeah. Another the- great unsung white. I mean, everyone talks Chardonnay, 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 but I mean, Riesling to me. I mean, Paul Greco has been banging this drum for years, and thank God to promote that. But and you with Chenin, I mean, you've helped me open my eyes. I, I mean, the expression of that grape is remarkable. What it can do, how many things it can be. It's, uh, it's yeah, it's one of the rare grapes you can you can you can express and you can vinify in a different style depending on where you are and how you grow it, because there is the acid structure, there is a phenolic structure to be able to handle 
dry and sweet, uh, bubbles, uh, long aging, oxidative, and so on and so on and so on. Maybe less known because the best results so far have been really limited to very few wine regions in the world where, where Riesling and Chard have been able to, to be grown in, yeah. in a lot of different regions. In uh, so suddenly, you know, when you are exposed to only a couple of hundred winemakers versus thousand and thousand winemakers all over, like all across the world, it's, it's, it's normal that this grape is not as famous as it should be. Uh, but it's going to change, you know, working hard on it. <laughs> so hopefully it's, uh, it's just, um, and Chenin was used for a long time. Even Chenin was replanted in California, by the way, but was used for blend, for blending with Colombard, you know, to make, um, to make very, High yield, uh, like easy fruit forward. Bond. In California, yeah, it was a lot of yeah. Chanel was a lot, plenty of lot, but not on the right side. So it's come back to to this thing. It's coming back to uh, knowing how to plant, where to plant, and respecting a biodiversity, and and probably thinking um, thinking thinking in a more smarter way about what you can do. You know, it's uh, it's not because you can technically technically do something that you should do it <laughs> true that true so uh, this is a question i've been asking people just like a theoretical hypothetical but it's not hypothetical it's a, it's a real question that i'm sort of bumping into and i'd love your opinion we're just step off to the side um away from alsace for a minute and away from the loire which we'll get back to so my son who you met when we were filming Rouge Chamat, he showed up and had yeah. dinner. And remember, he loved you. you we have to have, he's bugging <laughs> me. Him. We have to have dinner with Pascalini. We have to have dinner with Pascalini. Yeah. I have a million questions. Like, all right, we'll have dinner with Pascalini. So anyway, he's really into wine. So he moved to New York a year and a half ago. Dude. And he, he spends all of his disposable income at Flatiron. He's buying wines more expensive than I do. I'm like, what are you buying? Sean, what did you? It's crazy. I but hope he, he's sharing. With me, a lot of I, them. Uh, and with his good. girlfriend. But she's not as into wine as we are. But... Uh, so when I see him, like we'll have dinner once a week, and all we'll talk about is wine. Yeah. If, I, if I drive him home two and a half hours, all we talk about is wine. When so he'll bring the best bottle. So for Christmas, this is I haven't seen in a while. For Christmas, he came home. He hadn't been home in a long time, and he brought three or four bottles that I all, love them all. And one of them I had introduced him to Etna Bianco's with when he was having dinner with me. Yeah. So Caricantes the grape. Mm-hmm. Um, so he bought a pretty expensive bottle, almost $40, at Lou DiPaolo's store on Grand Street, mm-hmm. the Enoteca DiPaolo. He went there looking for an Enoteca. The only one they had was a really high-end one. <clears throat> so it was – he. Oh, so we opened it up. We're having four or five bottles of wine during the course of this meal at home. And this was one of the second or third. And he opens it up, and I pour it into the glass, and I'm looking at it, and it's almost – not exactly an orange wine, but it's been on the leaves for a while. You could see it's got color. Okay. It's got some something Easy. going on and already. Some, and then I skin. swirl it and oxidative style. I'm like, what the heck am I? What am I drinking here? What's the backstory of this wine? So we're oh, that bottle's probably open for the course of an hour. We had a couple of bottles we were all working on at the same time, and of course it's changing. Within the glass, glass to glass dramatically. So at the end of the meal, I go upstairs and I said, we got to find out about this wine. I'm completely, you know, it's really unusual style. So, yeah, it's a small farmer on Etna, bio from day one, works the field with a mule, a couple thousand cases is all he produces, but no sulfur, zero, no sulfur anywhere in the winemaking, not for stabilization at the end, mm-hmm. just doesn't use it. So I've asked this question to winemakers. Most recently, my friends in Alsace about that 
Because to me, I'm kind of on the fence. To me, there's like a purity to that. Okay, I mean, so it might exist naturally, but you don't want to add trace amounts for stability. But at the same time, if you're not adding, especially whites, if you're not adding teeny weeny bit of a loud sulfur just to say, what am I buying? If I buy a case, are there 12 bottles the same? Or if I buy a bottle and I go back to the store a month later and I buy another bottle, what am I getting? These these two wines may be like left-handed worlds apart. What's what's your take? I work with a lot of wine made with no sulfur. Um, I, uh, I'm i not a winemaker, so it's... Right, you know, I know I'm, that. I'm, it's, it's not fair. Like, it's not fair. Like, I, I have a second hand. I have. The, I am at the end of the end, end, end of the road uh, with, with the people drinking them. Um, it's, uh, it's, the sulfur is, um, is, is a question that also, for me, is a symptom of uh, happening in what we know in terms of what we add into wine, you know? So it's true that nothing added, nothing taken away... Um, is, is something that we hear a lot. Uh, sulfur being the one that people tend to think they know the, or they can talk about because it's a world and it's almost a notion that they, you know, it's common language. It's not like a molecule that you never heard of and right. you don't really master. Um, I have a lot of respect for people that are deciding to uh, to uh, to work that way. Uh, you are a farmer and, you know, you decide to just to go this way knowing that maybe your production can go wrong. I have I have friends that lost wine this way. Lost? It, it was, I, they lost wine. They in lost, the case, lost, in the cork, lead on, you open the wine, it's not drinkable. Yeah, it's like it's uh, there is a very high level of, of volatile acidity, there is instability in the wine, there is re-fermentation, you know. Um, um, but they, they, they are going towards that, that thing and that, that ideal. So it's an ideal. Um, that's like, what that's what so Ostertag the guys I asked the guy the bio team three guys and I love them all I asked them the same question and everyone the answer was it's a great dream it's a great goal it's a great aspiration but as a winemaker that wants to deliver to me the best wine I can produce I add a little tiny bit of sulfur below the step I'm still allowed to call it organic and bio but I know when I bottle my wine I'm confident when it goes into a shipping container and it's shipped to the around the world I know what my consumer is getting yeah it's for stabilization yeah. The, the sulfur is not part in that case because sulfur is such a complicated story you can add sulfur as so many parts of, of the winemaking you correct can, you can spray it on the grey you can spray you it on the leaves you are spraying on the grape the right. real non-sulfur winemaker the real that no sulfur whatsoever there is very few of them that are um, some of them are like these guys are totally idealistic they don't even spray sulfur on a grape to fight against mildew and oidium. Like, we are at that level of no sulfur whatsoever. So they are looking for alternative because sulfur is used at that moment against fungus. Yeah. Then you get sulfur before press. You can get sulfur to stop yeast and bacteria. Right. Right. Then you get... So there is different use of that of that molecule and there is different type of sulfur you can use too. So, um, yes, there is this idea of stabilization. I was lucky, I was lucky recently to spend some time with Pierre Auvernois in Jura um, that mm. was pretty considered one of the of of the the most the, the wisest, the most wise uh, winemaker right now. Uh, he's in his late eighties and he's making no sulfur wine since nineteen eighty six. Yet, um, what you take from him when you talk with him is how difficult 
and complicated and it's linked to so many parameters of living organism that it's it's not an easy thing to do it's really uh, you are always walking on on a rope uh, and you manage to do it because it's in a certain climate with mm. certain grape with mm. certain ph and so on and so on and so on it's um, it's like i i totally respect i love this wine i like this i drink some of this wine some of them are they don't they don't manage to travel very well but i don't know if i want some of my you know my unpasteurized milk to be taking over the atlantic without being kept in a in a temperature control right. container it's the same thing you know yeah. what you need to respect is the desire behind it to show that with wine more than probably any anything in this in in the world of food and beverage wine has the ability to translate something very special uh, which is very funny, like just to, to finish on that, but don't you think it's amazing that when you taste the juice of a wine, I don't know if you have done, like have you done harvest? If you've done harvest, you know, you taste juice just of the press and it tastes like grape juice. It just tastes like grape juice. And it <laughs> tastes like a grape juice from two different vineyards, you know, you, you can be very, it's going to taste, it's barely, sometimes you can barely recognize even the varietal. Um, the only thing is amazing that fermentation, so the chemistry of fermentation yeah, reveals the soil yeah. and where it's from. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, so when, when there is a phenomenon that is so, it's not really alchemia, but it's close to that. No, it's like alchemy. I, I, say, it's, I say it's the same. It's like alchemy. So it's, like, it's magical to is, me. There is something. That this juice, this sort of insipid, sweet juice that. Through fermentation. Through, for, through fermentation. Is going to reveal something so, that. Remarkable. Remarkable. And then even the, like you get like, where am I getting forest floor? Where am I getting what leaves? Where am I getting violet petals? Where am I getting truffles? Oh. Where am I. All the things that we describe in that nomenclature of off the nose, off the side. Yeah, where the, is it? The structure, the structure, why is this tannic structure, and so on. Where, where yeah. does it... Yeah. So when you have this kind of very unique phenomenon and you can drink it and you can enjoy it, um, maybe you just more, instead of trying to, def- desperately trying to control it, maybe you just <coughs> walk along with it, you know, observe it and respect it. And I think this is a demarch. Like, for me, is what people doing low intervention, no additives, why not into that, you know? And they were talking about, so we were walking through his vineyard, and um, Umbrecht was talking about, you know, he doesn't do green pruning. He's, oh. It's a less vigorous plant. It's not growing the way other plants are that, that have all sorts of chemicals in the soil that push. So he, he's letting the plants grow taller. He says when, when his when his when his grapes, because they, they terrace them high, he says you can see through his vineyards, mm. and you can't in a lot of vineyards because of the density. Density, a lot of a lot of nitrogen used for very a lot of canopy management. Um, there is, it's just linked to so many way of thinking the farming, and and one of the big thing I think it needs to be mentioned if you are talking especially about biodynamy. Um, there is an idea behind biodynamy which is about biodiversity. Uh, well, we are still probably in a pretty highly dominated monoculture industry where grapes just became ocean of vineyards. 
um, linking to probably more disease, more, 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 more difficulties to grow the right way, more clonal selection, and so on and so on. Um, one thing, especially with people like Olivier or, or Christophe and a bunch of other people in Alsace, uh, they are not necessarily certified, but you can think about the Biner, the Piafric, the Schuller. Piafric was a huge, huge, uh, huge person influence on that. But they are thinking about biodiversity. Um, and and you you just can't have vine. You you need to have you need other th- yeah. You need to have connection between which between other plants and 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 insects and other vegetables to be able to farm the right way. If you want to have a certain type of grape of quality grape, so this is forgotten too. People don't talk enough about the, the ravage of of monoculture in 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 in, in viticulture, but. If you start, it's like it's like what we are seeing in all the food industry. You know, if you if you have one clone of one species of one thing that is grown of on hectares and hectares, at one point the soil is dead. You're killing the, it's killing the land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've right, it's, it's true. So we somehow managed <laughs> without notes, without <laughs> any formal pre-interview interview. Forty-five minutes gone. Bang. Done. We could do 45 more. Oh, so yeah. I can't wait to talk to you when you come back. If I can't oh. get you on air, which I probably won't because I only have a few more shows, let's break some bread when you're back in California. I'd love to hear your takeaway. I would love to, yeah. Sounds like so much fun. And I'm doing yeah. a little something in Napa, like a boot camp thing in uh, August. We're flying out there for just four or five days. No, so I'm trying to open my head. I'm trying to open my head There's up. so many great things happening in Napa. There are. Thanks so much, my, my uh, guest. Thanks so much for having me. Pasolina Peltier, Master Sam. I can't say that enough. There's not that <laughs> many of them, and it's so much bloody work. I have no idea how you do it. Congratulations on all that. Drinking S- a lot. <laughs> no, studying a lot and learning a lot and having a great palate and a great brain. So next week, I don't know. I've got some great guests. I don't know who's on. I don't have my notes in front of me. But stay tuned. We have three more live shows before I take the summer off. Stay tuned for next week's Food Talk, and keep listening to Heritage Radio Network. If you have a few extra dollars, donate because they need your money to keep shows like this on air be well see you next week take care thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on facebook and follow us on twitter at heritage underscore radio you can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>